and welcome to Steminist Stories, a podcast celebrating some of the unsung women of science, technology, engineering and maths. I'm Reba, one of your hosts, a massive science nerd with a passion for engineering, space and sustainability. And I'm Nell, an ex-parasitologist and outdoor enthusiast. And I'm Rachel, producer and resident history nerd. Welcome to Steminist Stories. Hello everyone and welcome to Steminist Stories. Today we're going to be talking about explorers. I think we've got a lot of Victorians to talk about today. Yeah, today is the day of Victorian exploring ladies. As a bit of context, this is because the Victorian era was 100% the historical period of like, especially British people going abroad and, well, colonising everywhere and discovering these new worlds of Africa and all these other places that no one had ever been to or travelled to or explored in depth before, you know, except for the people who lived there before white people turned up. So the Victorian era is when all this idea of exploration was like really romanticised. That is why nearly every woman we're looking at today is Victorian because it's 100% era where this was popular. Um, But I'm kicking us off with a woman called Mary Kingsley, who's really interesting. She was fitting into like the Victorian ideals of womanhood originally in her life where she wasn't given a formal education because she was female and it wasn't deemed that that was necessary. And she spent a long time caring for her parents, so her mother was really ill and she spent a lot of her earlier years in a caring role, so very much a traditional Victorian woman. But her father was someone who wrote like books about Africa and other places and would read these stories to her, so she had a real big interest in this from like her childhood. Um, and when he died, and then her mother died shortly afterwards, he actually left her a massive amount of money that meant that she was able to go and explore things by herself and had this freedom wow. uh, that women didn't normally have. So like she didn't get married, she just went and explored instead and she was able to do that, which in Victorian times is a very rare thing. So she travelled to West Africa by herself in 1893, which is something that didn't really happen. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't do that. I've never been anywhere by myself apart from the UK. I'd be terrified. I know, like, and especially then when it was like all the attitudes towards women was like how fragile they were. Can you imagine like being like, yeah. oh, I'm just going to go and get on a boat and go to Africa by myself. Yeah, no, I can't even imagine that. Like, I travelled down to Wales a couple of days ago for five hours, and I was like, oh, there's someone sitting next to me. Oh. <laughs> but maybe that's COVID, so maybe I that's yeah. <laughs> We're all scared of travel now. <laughs> I mean, this is what I really liked about her. So in some ways, she was like a really traditionally Victorian woman who was, I think I've got a quote here. Women, a lady had no right to go about in Africa and things that you would be ashamed to be seen in at home. <laughs> so she would walk around in like these elaborate, like Edw- like Victorian clothing, Edwardian clothing of like full skirts and stuff in Africa. But she also, at least on her first trip, travelled really light. So she didn't have a port. She didn't have any ports with her. She didn't carry rifles. She didn't even pack a tent. So she would just went out. She was, I mean, she was kind of wearing a tent. So she was wearing a tent basically. <laughs> That must have been so uncomfortable. I know, so heavy. There's a fact that she survived She survived a 15-foot drop. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> into a pit full of spikes 12 inches long. Spikes? Apparently, and it was said she dressed more suited, that her skirts were so thick that they protected her. Amazing. Is, this is a well-known thing. So there's, I live near, near Clifton Suspension Bridge. And in the Victorian times, a woman tried to jump off there and kill herself and her skirt puffed out and acted like a parachute and saved her life. (laughs) And then she became really famous from it and made loads of money and like married this young guy and was fine. But like, (laughs) they literally like, the skirt was a parachute and saved her and she's landed in the mud. Yeah, I love it. It's not dressed to impress. It's dressed to save your own life. I like it. (laughs) 
But then weirdly, like, so I was looking at Victorian clothing for hiking and what have you, and they were allowed to wear a short skirt, which meant it didn't hit, it hit just above the ankle, so they were... (laughs) (laughs) A short skirt is ankle length. (laughs) Yeah. But there's a story of a woman who, she was climbing up a cliff, and she was jumping from one rock to another rock. Um, And her skirt got caught on the rock that she was jumping from because it had a tear in it she hadn't noticed. And she fell into this, like, ravine and had to be, like, hoiked out by someone. And there was another woman who was climbing up this mountain and got soaked. Um, It was, like, really heavily raining. It was really foggy and they were doing this big hike and she got completely drenched. And they ended up having to sleep overnight and she died because she was, one, so tired from having to carry all this heavy material with her that was soaking wet. And then also she was obviously like, it didn't dry, so she was really, really cold. And the men survived and it's just... That's crazy. To think of the pressure, like, you have to wear that to the point where you might die. But social pressures are making you do that. That's so mad. And like, can you try, imagine trying to like explore places and wearing like petticoats and... I mean, the thing is, a lot of these clothes are designed so you can't do practical things. Yeah. They're a, they're a method of you know patriarchal control so you can't breathe enough to run so you don't run you know it's like it's it's a kind of akin to the whole feet binding thing that used to happen in in china to women you know it's like beauty society's idea of beauty is more important than what's practically safe what i like is that even though this is really hard and these are really uncomfortable outfits and they're corseted and they're bustled and all this kind of stuff the women are still going up the mountains regardless yeah yeah unstoppable i mean one thing I was saying that I saw earlier that I was like, we need to post this on uh, when this episode goes out, is a photo of a woman (laughs) climbing up a mountain face um, in a full skirt. But she's doing like rock climbing, which now you see people doing like wearing proper shoes and in like very comfortable clothing. And she was there in a full skirt and petticoats and like a tight little jacket and little heeled boots, like hanging off the side of a mountain. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's like not letting it stop her at all. One of the things that I think I really like about Mary is how she spoke out against kind of colonialism though because that's so rare again yeah definitely so generally in this time period a lot of the people going to africa especially had this attitude of it was very like a missionary based thing of people going over and trying to educate the natives on the real way of doing things was basically Mm. their attitude and like going and giving giving them christianity which actually often meant enforcing forcing them to abandon their traditional practices and become christian and doing a lot of very bad things in the process very unchristian things in the process <laughs> very unchristian things but then mary actually like was really outspoken against this so she went tra- because she went traveling by herself and got really embedded in a lot of these like cultures there so she wasn't kind of going as a sort of a tourist vibe which women especially at that era were doing they were like missionary women who like the hu- their husbands were there to convert people and that's why they were there but she was really embedded so she was like really anti-missionary she thought that they were terrible and they were trying to force religion on people came when she came back she started speaking out in favor of polygamy and saying that it's actually like a perfectly legitimate lifestyle Whoa. i mean because it was the victorian era it's still she did still believe that british intervention in africa was essential but she believed that it should be like an, an indirect rule kind of way so it wasn't shouldn't be like enforcing our culture but just supporting them to be better, which is still not a good attitude, but... It's still patronising, but it's... Still very patronising. <laughs> pretty impressive, given where she came from. Yeah, for the late Victorian, early and early Edwardian era, that's, like, quite revolutionary for... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> upper-class white women from England. But she became a celebrity because of the fact that she was a woman who'd done this by herself, and so she got, like, mm. a book deal out of it, and 
became quite famous and like gave all these lectures when she got back because everyone was like, oh, she's explored us by herself and she wrote this famous book about it. Also alone, like I read that she got questions about why she wasn't doing Africa with her husband and wouldn't she rather be married than at home with her husband. Um, yeah, I think she's just really cool. I mean, she's got three species of fish named after her. Oh, yeah. Cool. Which is quite a cool thing to say you have. And um, and she travelled uncharted territory. And I saw a really cool thing, which is she climbed up Mount, Mount Cameroon using a route that had not previously been attempted by any European. Probably, you know, attempted loads by locals and successfully done loads by locals. But um, And she started it with five other European men and they all didn't reach the top and she did. And she had the full skirt and everything. <laughs> yeah, they all like bailed out halfway up the mountain and she was like, I'm going to get to the top. Cool. I do think that the, um, the idea of uncharted territories is always a... An interesting one because you hear it mentioned a lot. Like it's like, mm. oh, she she was the first person to map out this area. It's like, well, she wasn't the the, the first. She was uncharted by who? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, the map the map doesn't fit with the kind of map we want to see. Yeah, that's a big thing. Yeah, you know, how how distorted maps are. Oh yeah, I was gonna say the whole other side thing is. To, yeah, well, I mean, if you compare a world map to a satellite map, it's totally yeah. different. Like you can hardly see the UK. America's tiny. Africa's a lot bigger. Yeah. Well, it's the idea that it. Um, emphasizes white supremacy or the ideas exactly. of white supremacy because the western hemisphere is so much it's stretched to be so much bigger mm. um that greenland and africa look like the same size which is one of the most ludicrous things that you can imagine and then the southern hemisphere especially is shrunk so much that it creates this idea that we're equal halves or actually that the west is bigger and more dominant and it's on the top of the map and not the bottom of the map, which is maybe where it should be. Yeah, I mean, there's no up and down in space. <laughs> Just a floating ball. <laughs> it's all equal in a sphere, guys. <laughs> but um, I think, Reba, the people... You were looking at um, some polar explorers, right? And I think that they came across definitely the attitude of women should be staying at home and not going and living in scary places and going exploring. Oh, 100%, yeah. And I think it's interesting because at the same time that there was this kind of, you know, scrabble for Africa and everyone wanted to go there, there's also this, everyone's going to polar regions as well. And I think especially among kind of Western audiences, the polar landscape was written as quite a kind of feminised thing. So you have lots of words like, this landscape needs to be penetrated and conquered by heroic men. And it's quite, like, sexualized. Like, the, the, the landscape Ew. is kind of yeah. pure and white and icy and we need to go and, you know... I just, I mean, I hate the word penetration in any context, but <laughs> it just seems weird in relation to polar exploration. But it was seen as a masculine endeavour. And even though, like, from the early days, women tried to access it, like Mary Stopes, who's obviously now famous as an advocate for birth control and is an amazing yeah. woman. If you don't know much about her life, like, go and read about it because she's incredible. She was also a paleobotanist and she tried Ooh. to get on one of the expeditions that um, Scott ran and he refused just because she was a woman, even though she was highly qualified. Can I just ask those of us who are less scientific, what is a paleobotanist? I think it's like historic botany. So like historic plants, because paleo is history and botanist is plant. There's, I've definitely seen on Dragon's Den like a paleo food Oh, everyone company. does paleo diet, which is like that you eat. It's really bad for you, apparently. Well, yeah, they're all extinct. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's saying, oh, this is how we ate in cave times. It's like, well, yes, but people also died at 30. So whilst a lot of like white Western women weren't allowed to do polar exploration because it was seen as not suitable for women, their clothing couldn't hack it, their constitution was too weak for the Arctic ice, they'd slow everyone down. Um, there was an idea that like the white wilderness would make them hysterical. They used, they still used a lot of indigenous women. So in the 1860s and 70s, there was a woman called... And I'm going to try my best to pronounce this. And I'm probably going to say it really wrong. I do apologise. 
Tukulito, so T-O-O-K-O-O-L-I-T-O, um, who became quite famous in the West. And she was a Inuit woman who went on several expeditions with a guy called Charles Hall, who was an American explorer. And he met her and her husband and gave them the Western names of Hannah and Joe, because, you know, apparently they don't, like, their own names are not good enough. Um, and hired them as guides to go on his expedition to find the remains of the Franklin expedition. And they went on several with him. And then when they came back, he toured them as part of his lectures and they were exhibited. Oh, like as specimens, basically. Oh, and they no. drew massive crowds. Oh, God. Um, and they went, he toured them. So he would show, this is a, you know, this is a picture of the Arctic. Oh, and this is an Arctic Inuit woman. And as a result of one of the East Coast tours, her young son, Butterfly, became ill and died of pneumonia in 1863, which is really sad. But despite that, she returned to the Arctic and gave birth to a son whilst on an expedition. So she's heavily pregnant on the expedition. Gave birth to a son who died on the expedition. Um, and she adopted a Inuit girl called Panka, which means daughter. Um, they accompanied Charles Hall on his final expedition and they took their daughter with them. And there was an incident where Hall died and the party were left behind and the ship broke and they were on a big iceberg drifting in the water and they were left drifting for six months and they were only kept alive because her and her husband had indigenous hunting skills from their childhoods and that kept the whole crew alive until they could be saved by a sealing ship in April 1873. So that's really interesting. So a lot of indigenous women contributed and they also contributed to other kind of polar expedition. Like they would sew clothes and like bring survival gear and carry things and they were often subjected to sexual harassment and racism and it's really hard because a lot of the these um, experiences of these indigenous women are just lost so their stories and contributions remain largely obscured yeah or trivialize like the fact that they're just at a circus kind of show where it's like go look at these people but you know they carried the expedition in a way like if it wasn't for them you wouldn't have been able to go on that expedition. Yeah. They're not a sideshow. Yeah. Well, racial attitudes at the time, I remember studying this before, it's like stuff like martial race theory and eugenics of like different races were categorised as to where they were. I mean, her and her husband didn't get any money out of being shown and like thousands of people all across America and all across the West went to see them. They've seen as like, yeah, like fascinating creatures rather than Yeah, I mean, there's that guy that was a pygmy that was kept in a human zoo exhibit in a Bronx Zoo, a pygmy. He was in a zoo exhibit. Like, that is mind-blowing. But there was um, a woman who was toured in France for years as, like, uh, this black woman who was, like, put in a cage and was naked and was shown around as, like, this specimen. And this was in the same kind of era, like, that kind of mid-1800s. Oh. It's so, it's so, it's really weird. But, I mean, one of the best countries for women doing Arctic research is actually Russia, because, obviously, when communism came about in the early 1900s in the USSR... They had a lot of feminist policy and equal because under communism, everyone is equal. You don't really have embedded patriarchy in the same way. So they had divorce laws that were equal. Women could vote. Women were expected to do the same kind of work. But I'm pretty sure that they had contraception. Yeah, they did. The Soviet Union had like stuff like abortion laws and contraception much available much earlier than America did, for example. I mean, women could vote. You know, because it's very, it's an equal society. They had like a weird like propaganda thing of like a woman's, her duty to her country, having children. But then also they were really, because of the Cold War, especially in like after the 40s, they had like this whole thing around women's duty was to go into the workplace and 
support the like motherland in terms of like ensuring that the communist state survived so there was like much mm. more equality in that way for sure i mean apparently they were like women were encouraged to participate in the oceanographic institute really early like in the 1920s and in 1933 there's a marine scientist called maria clenova who produced the first seabed map of the barnet sea which is in the arctic so it's the first time that a map was ever made of a sea in the arctic and it's you know 1933 so that is cool sounds very cool and cold <laughs> very very cool and cold but um yeah, so it's interesting that like different cultures are dealing with it in different ways, even within the West. Yeah, I think I just find the um, virginal landscape thing so gross. <laughs> I find that so weird, yeah. Like, go and conquer and penetrate the landscape. and But then equally being like, the whiteness will send women hysterical, so it's like it's both female, but like women can't handle it. It's yeah, such a- it's, a, it's very, like, I don't know, the language is very kind of... I think a lot of the language we use about exploration though is very like thrusting and male even now you know <laughs> thrusting it, I, I know oh. I, I didn't think I'd use the words like penetrate and thrusting in this podcast but there we go I'll do that. <laughs> but it's interesting because you know a lot of the time it's that kind of go outdoors and do stuff thing and a lot of people are like oh like like girls don't like camping I've been told that girls don't like camping I love camping yeah my favourite thing to do is wild swimming not gonna yeah, lie yeah wild swimming's amazing thing to do. like mud pies I bloody love making mud pies as a child <laughs> yeah uh, speaking of that actually my stemonist hero did she make mud pies Annie Montego Alexander she probably did make mud pies because uh, <laughs> she was described and this is a shame that it has to be described as tomboyish to like being outside but um, she definitely was constantly spending her time outside she was raised in hawaii so i mean i'm not surprised she wanted to be outside all the time in hawaii yeah but she was actually born to a really wealthy family because they were like the pioneers of raising sugarcane in hawaii so a lot of money and this was really used in her favor she used it well as we'll discuss but there was a little quote that i really liked about how tomboyish she was she had a habit of entering her bedroom through the window by way of climbing onto the roof instead of by the door and i just think that's really cool <laughs> I feel like that describes her really well. Like, she won't use a door. She'll clamber up the side of the house to get in. And I really like that. And it makes me think as well, I did a little research about how much time kids spend outdoors because I think that's a really big thing on encouraging you to, I don't know, to explore and stuff. Yeah, definitely. And sadly, there's a lot of reports that children nowadays are spending half the time playing outside compared to the parents, like only about four hours um, a week of playing Ah. outdoors. That was in 2018. It's probably gone down more since the pandemic. But like, I used to go outside as soon as I came home from school, and then just come back when it got dark. Yeah, I know. We but... used to have a um a scooter gang oh, <laughs> on yes. my street with all of us on a little pushing like pushing our <laughs> little, little scooters along. I had a brat scooter that I loved. <laughs> Going up and down the road, being like, oh, I was so free. But no, I think it's so important though. Is getting outside. It does scare me. I mean, maybe this is me being old fashioned, but like seeing kids on their iPads all the time, restaurants at their iPads or just indoors. And I think like reading about all these explorers, it's like, it is so important to get outside. So anyway, so she was really enjoying the outdoors. Um, She was educated at home until 14 and then went to school in Honolulu for a year. And then at 15, moved to California where she went to college and she wasn't really studying any science stuff. She was involved in like French, German, dress cutting, photography, and then started to do painting in Paris but she had like a lot of eye trouble and they were warning her she was going to go blind so she was like oh I ain't doing this then but yeah sensible really yeah (laughs) and then I I guess her love for like being outdoors she started taking an interest in natural history and started attending lectures at the University of California in 1900 where she loved the lectures on paleontology so like the study of fossils and stuff by Dr. John C. Merriam 
And she was like, oh, this is my jam. And I think it's really cool because she got in touch with John C. Merriam. They've got a great friendship now. Well, back then. And she was like, you know what? I'm going to fund some of your research trips. And he was like, yeah, defo, you should. And uh, she funded a lot of his research trips because she had all this money and all this backing. But then also went along with him too. There's a great photo of her like hiding behind a boulder with a big shotgun and stuff like she was a proper like I can do whatever a man can do and I think her dad really supported her on that amazing I think we should 100% collect as many weird like just hilarious Victorian and Edwardian women explorer photos and just keep posting them for the entire week (laughs) I think we definitely should because they're boss they're absolutely boss so her first field trip was to Fossil Lake and then she did a couple in Shasta County in Northern California where she actually discovered this is where my pronunciation is going to be awful. Three important ichthyosaur skeletons. And one of them turned out to have never been found before. Oh, wow. The new species. So they named it Shastasaurus Alexandra in Annie's <laughs> honour, which is really cool. Oh, and in nice. fact, I looked up, she's got so many different fossils and plants and birds and animals like named after it. And it's quite sweet because I don't think it's always her that puts herself forward. Um, I think it's her companions that go, you know what, we should name it after her because she had like a kind of knack for going into different areas and finding different fossils and I think she just had a real impact on people I would have loved to meet her you know like I'm I'm curious to know what she must have been like really cool I think it's so interesting that it like it really shows like the what having economic power can do for women like because she was able to fund these things so she then she was able to go and she was able to afford to go to university and it's like had she not had that money yeah she just wouldn't have been able to do anything she did but you know what I think is really amazing so she had all this money and she could have been like look at me I'm doing this I'm doing that a lot of the stuff she got she donated to the museum she set up two museums and whenever she was donating them she didn't put her name it was just a a friend of the university and I think that that modesty and not that girls have to be modest but you know I just think that's a lovely touch as well like there wasn't a need to kind of trumpet it it's like she loved the knowledge yeah she loved the knowledge sharing it for sharing education not for her ego or for esteem but for the fact that there should this should be seen by people and not to say that women should be modest but there's definitely like a whole range of men at this time who are like I have gone and I have found this new place and I'm going to put my name on it and call it yeah like loads of places in Africa are named after like well, you had like Rhodesia, which was an entire country named after Cecil Rhodes and all these things of men being like, well, yes, I'm here now. Let me name everything after me that I can see. I'm naming this whole country after me, not to compensate for a small something or anything. <laughs> <laughs> like she could have named so many things after herself, more fossils. It was literally John that was naming the fossils after her. And like I say, she could have been like, oh, yeah, put my plaque everywhere on this museum. There's literally only one photo of her in the museum because she just wasn't phased about it. She watched, There was no hunger to penetrate the land of fossils and all this sort of stuff. And I think... Because it's just, she's doing it because yeah, she loves the science. Yeah, I really rate that. And she thinks it's interesting and just for the joy of learning, not for ego or esteem or prestige or all that stuff that kind of clouds science so often. I'm not saying women need to be modest, but I just think during that time to see her being like that is quite wow i don't think women need to be modest at all but i think science in general should be done for the love yes. of it and for the passion of it and for the joy of learning not for ego yeah i love that yeah like and i think women need to shout louder about our achievements but i also think in general if people stopped scrambling for their name on the thing yeah and just focused on getting people to learn and understand yes then science would be a much better Hell discipline. yeah, it's not competition, it's collaboration. I literally live by that. That's exactly. what it should be. 
So. It's like no one ever does anything in science. I mean, in most things, but definitely in science. It's never a solo effort. Like, no one went and discovered these, these places um, or did exploration, found things by themselves. Like, yeah. They did it with the help of also, someone. Also, we all stand on the shoulders of the people that came before us and we're all laying foundations for the future. I don't think it should... I think there's a real issue with attributing discoveries, especially in science, to one person because okay, it's great that you've done that thing, but you've never done it alone. And often you've done it because you had economic power to. You had the ability to think. So true, so true. So I thought that was a really nice touch. And also because she had all that finance, she was very keen to support financially the university's research and collecting programs. So she was definitely giving out what she had, which is really lovely. She also had a great relationship with another female called Louise Kellogg. Um, She wanted a traveling companion when she went to Alaska. So Louise Kellogg was this companion and um, that marked a 42 year relationship between the two of them. Um, And it sounded like they had this fantastic partnership where they kind of went on loads of travels, collected a load of stuff together. Between the two of them, they documented and donated more than 22,000 plant, animal and paleontological specimens. Wow. And, you know, they went to the American West and they went as far as Egypt, which is just really sweet and I think I mean there was a lot of speculation that they had this really close relationship that they were romantically involved but regardless of whether they they were or weren't like I love how much they supported one another and how they pursued this massive interest they had of collecting and documenting new species and then I'm like, damn, I want that. That's cool as hell. <laughs> also, I mean, like, great if they are in a relationship or not, but there's so many men that went on discovery and travel things and no one goes, maybe they were gay. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't matter. It's never even comes into the conversation. No, so there's always that thing of like, oh, are they gal pals? Yeah, and it's like, why, like, why does it matter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the research at all. We wouldn't be saying that about guys. But I think the issue historically is that Obviously, it was illegal and frowned upon. Oh my gosh, was it illegal then? I forget these things. That's mass. That's horrendous. Yeah, so it was illegal until the sixties. Jeepers! I think you know it's great for them to be visibility and to be proud and to be saying it's a story. But also, like, only if they want yeah. to. Yeah. Like, if it, it, it is their sexuality, if they don't want to publicize it, they don't have to. It's only a part of who they are. And I think speculation around it. I mean, you just don't get speculation around two male scientists collaborating in the same way. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. You know, it's it's not fetishized in quite the same way, which is interesting. One last thing, though, because um, I thought this was re- really cool. She was still going until she was about 80. She celebrated her 80th birthday in Sierra de la Laguna Mountains, and she was still collecting and funding for the museums. And how boss oh, is that? Excellent. That is so yeah. cool. So that was just, that was me to finish. <laughs> cool. I get too tired to go out after work now. <laughs> I don't know. Like when I'm 80. Yeah, I was like, it makes me feel like I should start climbing more mountains if she could do it at 80. Definitely, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, our final woman is Dame Maria Matilda Gordon. No, very <laughs> elaborate. <laughs> very mmm. Um, she is a Scottish geologist, paleo paleontologist and politician um so she's born in aberdeen in 1864 so victorian times and she always had a real interest in nature but kind of didn't there wasn't a clear route of what she could do with it so she went to university college london and got a bachelor of science in geology botany and zoology and then she traveled to germany where she hoped to study at the university of berlin but women weren't permitted to enroll for higher education in germany so she was refused So what she did is she contacted the University of Munich, 
which said that she could carry out research as a private person and listen to lectures, but because she was a woman, she had to sit in a separate room no. and listen with the door half open so no. she could distract the men from their studies. No! How, if you're that easily distracted from your studies, <laughs> you probably should be picking a different subject to look at because I was never like, oh, I'm so engaged in this lecture. I'm just going to go stare at the pretty man next to me for four hours instead. Um, in July 1891... She befriended a geologist called Baron Ferdinand von <laughs> Rothman, oh, wow. who sounds like a oh, character. this is getting... The names are getting better on this I, one. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing them all wrong. I'm so sorry to any German speakers. Um, who invited her on a five-week trip to the Dolmenites. God, any friends like that. Which is an Italian... Ma- I mean, this is why you need to befriend a baron. <laughs> a baron von someone. Um, and she had been considering a career in zoology, but this landscape just impressed her so much and got under her skin, and she decided she wanted to study geology. So she spent two summers hiking and climbing and studying the various areas. She um, helped to record fossils and did all this field work without supervision, which she later described as a serious handicap um, in her academic work. So in nineteen, sorry, in eighteen ninety three, she published the results of an article talking about the geology of the area in the Journal of the Geographical Society. And it was hugely important. And it described fossils and coral associations that hadn't been described before. She described 345 species of mollusk and coral. 345? Yeah, I didn't even know there were that many. But today there's 1,400 species that she catalogued. It was the first time they were catalogued. And I think because a lot of people were going to the Arctic and to... Um, Africa, people weren't really exploring Europe in that way and looking at the fossilization and the paleo history of Europe, yeah. which is also really interesting. Like, there's a really interesting piece of work done by a British scientist a few years ago who found that the place you're most likely to find a new species is in your back garden because it's the place you're most likely to look. So, you can find new life and uncharted life and make scientific discoveries anywhere. It doesn't have to be yeah. somewhere that is, you know, exotic. So, the article gained her. Her first, P- the first female PhD in the United Kingdom, and she returned to Munich oh, to do wow. more study and to obtain a PhD there. And her manuscript was nearly ready for publication, her thesis in 1914, when war broke out, Ooh. and she had to leave Germany and return to Scotland. And she returned as soon as she was safe to do so in 1920, so six years later, and her manuscript had disappeared completely. No. So she rewrote it from scratch. God, that's like your worst nightmare. That's like when word crashes and you're like, here we go. I mean... Oh, God, can you imagine? I mean, I feel like, yeah, being like, oh, God, like the, like the dog's air <laughs> is not as good an excuse. But a war broke out. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, sorry, World War One happened and... Uh... <laughs> and she's... So she eventually published it and it got glowing praise in the Journal of Nature. And she was really key in trying to communicate geology and paleontology to lay people so not like non-scientists nice bit of science communication and she said it was really important she was also very liberal very supportive of women's rights and took prominent roles in loads of women's societies so she has more than 30 papers attributed to her and she's been called the most probably the most productive woman in the field of geology in any country in the late 19th and early 20th century that's so impressive and i think it's such a contrast like, it wasn't that many years, but, like, going back to, like, you know, Mary Kingsley, who was doing this exploration, was, like, pushing gender boundaries, but also still was like, oh, a woman should still dress appropriately, even if she's in Africa and she should wear, like, the full corset and stuff. And then you have, like, this woman who is, like, 
like Maria, who is the full opposite, who is like joining women's societies and like really pushing for like women's rights. And the difference is like 30 years. I mean, I don't think it's so Maria was born in 1864 and Mary was born in 62. So there's two years difference. Um, But obviously Mary died, like died a long time before Maria. But it's just, yeah, it's interesting how like one went down the academic route and one went down the kind of publication route. I think that's the thing with exploring is it's trying to communicate. I know what, you know what I'd love to see is all those journals because I know for a fact if you asked me to sit and draw a mollusk, it would not look like a mollusk. But I always feel like when you see those Victorian kind of handbooks that they had back in the day, they look fantastic. Like I think another shout out to our social media. I think we should be putting some of those up because I love that kind of visual artistry of the victorian times i think they're great yeah it was like a real big um there's a real big market for it i can't remember which house it i think it's victorian times i can't remember which old house it is i think it might be temple newsome in leeds where they got like they'd make these like really big elaborate like nature books full of like drawings of like birds or fish and people bought them and like cut out all these drawings and like wallpapered them onto their walls to make it look like they were living in like is a bird room and they did this and it's the best i walked in and i was like I just want my entire house. Oh, I love like that. Yeah. I mean, I quite like when I was looking at the paleontology stuff and fossils, I like the fact that a lot of Victorians kind of absolutely ran away with their imagination of drawing dinosaurs and what they might look like. And it became like a popularity contest with drawing dinosaurs in different ways. And they were so elaborate and like just went to town on it. And I think I just love the way they it's were that like thing that. that. I think of like communication is so important especially in like STEM subjects that so often people think they're really unaccessible mm-hmm. or boring. which is even Yeah, worse. so it's great that you can have that, a visual way of, I mean, I know it's natural history, so it's a lot more visual than, I don't know, drawing. I guess not, actually, you could draw an engineering. <laughs> but I mean, I do remember being, uh, being a kid and going to the Natural History Museum where they have the like, the mechanical dinosaurs in the in the entrance, and, or is it in the entrance or wherever the mechanical dinosaur bit is? Yes! And they move around. And I think I must have been like five and just been like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> There was, in the museum in Cardiff, they have a mammoth. And it was there was a mummy and a baby mammoth. And they were like robotic. And I, I used to go there all the time when I was a kid because my mum always took me to museums. And I loved them. And I went there, like, when I lived in Cardiff last year for the first time in like 15 years. And <laughs> they've just like stopped working and they've got bald patches. <laughs> it's really sad. I think it's yeah I think there is something innately human as well about wanting to catalogue and keep and show things that are interesting and that's that thing of like exploration you know like people like with the space argument people are often like well, why are we bothering and it's like well there's something in us that oh, wants yeah. to know we're naturally curious aren't we and also why not Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Steminist Stories. Tune in next week where we'll be listening to more amazing stories from women in STEM. And don't forget to follow us on all our social media channels. Thank you to everyone from our behind the scenes team that makes Steminist Stories possible. (laughs) 